Good evening. Thank you for uh, your prayer, John, and thank you for the song service, Mr. Law. What do you remember if you had grandparents and parents who were uh, strong Christians? What do you remember about them when you would visit them or when you would see them late at night or maybe on Sunday afternoons on their front porch? Do you happen to remember their Bible in their lap? When's the last time you've seen that? I don't think we see that nearly as much as we ought to. And I think one of the things we need to focus on, and one of the things in our busy lives, and one of the things in the midst of all of our technology is making sure that we stay attached to God's Word. And that's a good thing, obviously, but it's also an enjoyable thing. I want to do a lesson tonight that is kind of a revised lesson that I, uh, that I did several years ago. And in fact, I, I thought, oh, this will be easy, I'll pull one out. And I pulled it out and probably spent a whole lot more time preparing this than, uh, than I intended to because it's just good stuff. And it's not that my sermon is that good, it's that God's Word is that good. And God's Word is that, is that compelling. One of the things about studying the evidence of the Bible is typically it's a study we, that we do enjoy. It's a study that our, our seniors enjoy, and it's a study that our young people enjoy because they like having the answers. One of the things that we're going to do tonight, if our technology will work, and if not, I'll hand it off, but we're going to move because I've got way more slides than presenters ought to have. However, uh, seeing to me is a good way of, of studying and learning, and so, uh, so try to keep up with me, and here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Now we have received... Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, to claim for inspiration. Second Peter 1, verse 21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 2 Timothy 3:16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, these claims are claims that say that there's something more than just a, a written book of, of a lot of men. And so it is my task tonight to try to show to us that indeed these claims are accurate. And I want to start with a criticism that came long ago. For many years, those who tried to criticize the Bible would use among many arguments the argument that the story of Jacob and the butler and in interpreting the, uh, Pharaoh's dream could not be true. And they said the reason it was not true is because there's no evidence whatsoever that there were grapes in Egypt in the day of Pharaoh. And for many years, they posed that question and had very little evidence. 
And one of the things that happened a few years ago was there was a tomb that was found that had murals in it. And this individual, however you want to say his name, was the son of King Ramses. And in fact, some sources will say the second and some sources will say the third. And in fact, let me go back to that. Look at the date. Who lived 1282 to 1226 B.C. Now, one of the murals they found was this mural here. And I have zoomed a bit and cropped a bit. And if you look closely, what do you see? You see an individual harvesting grapes. Now, this was kept in the tomb. It was hidden in the tomb. It was there for many, many years until it was found. And I want you to think about the dates that are involved in this. How many years did people say there were no grapes in Egypt? Moses wrote 1,300, 1,200 years before Christ. The king lived 1282 to 1226 B.C. And so when the mural was found, obviously it indicated grapes were there. Joseph would have interpreted the dream somewhere between 1415 B.C., 1500 to 1400 B.C. But let's move on. Just an example. We're going to look at a lot of these tonight, and I'm going to have to figure out how to speed up. The very fact that the Bible has existed and continues to exist in and of itself is evidence that the Bible is inspired. Please click. All right, help me, Mark. All right, here we go. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, claims that God's word will forever stand, and someone could argue that doesn't specifically refer to the written word. It refers to God's word in many different forms, or maybe in a particular form, and I realize that could be argued. But I want you to think with me as we go through this about how many efforts there have been to get rid of the the Bible through the years. And on screen, you're reading ahead, which is fine. You read about the emperor, the Roman emperor Diocletian, who did everything he could to snuff out the Word of God, even claiming, as you're seeing on screen, that he would kill anybody, take the life of anybody who had copies of the Word of God. And if you notice the dates, you see that he was a Roman emperor from 284 to 316. So, would you get rid of your Bible if the government said that if you had it and you were found with it, you would die? Well, obviously many did. However, did everyone? Well, the next emperor was the Emperor Constantine. And as you read this, what you're going to see is that Constantine, at one point at least, was a Christian and was interested in undoing everything that Diocletian had done. And what he said was, I'll basically reward or provide benefit to anyone who can... Bring me a copy of the Scripture. And within a very small period of time, there were 
there was a number of copies that were brought. You may remember from history, in high school or junior high, the name Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine wrote the bulletin Common Sense. Common Sense was the bulletin that helped create the effort to bring Americans to America from England. Thomas Paine also, however, wrote another book that I became interested in many years ago. It's the book, The Age of Reason. And the primary purpose of Paine's book was to convince its reader that the Bible is a fraud. Well, I want to share with you some of the things that Paine said. In his book, he said, I believe in one God and one God only, and I hope for happiness beyond this life. Secondly, he stated in the book that the writings of Benjamin Franklin were far wiser than the writings of Solomon. In his book, he called the Word of God trash. And he stated, I believe in God, and God's Word is in creation. And that's how I know Him, and that's how I understand Him, and that's how He speaks to me universally. And then regarding the death of Jesus, he said, doesn't make sense. If it were written differently, then it would make sense. He said it this way. Had the inventors of the story of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus told it to the contrary, had those who written it set it up differently, that is, had they represented the Almighty as compelling Satan to exhibit himself on a cross in the shape of a snake as a punishment for his new transgression, the story would have been less absurd, less contradictory. But instead of this, they make the transgressor triumph and the Almighty fall. Well, if you didn't want to believe it, I guess you could see his argument. But Payne further said, in a few years there would be no Bible. In a few years there would be no Bible. And he said, however, my book would be a bestseller. Now, I don't usually ask for a show of hands, but I want to ask, does anybody in here have a copy of The Age of Reason? My guess is that I've got the only copy in the auditorium. And the reason I have the auditorium is I read an, uh, the book is because I don't have the auditorium. The reason I have the book is because uh, back actually in the early 80s, I read some of Payne's writings and I thought, I've got to read more of this. I looked and looked, finally went to Trenton, Tennessee to get a copy of the book in the library and eventually found one. Payne said, this Bible can't keep going. People won't have it. It'll be hard to find, but my book will be everywhere. The very fact that the Bible continues, 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 <laughs> thank you, continues to exist, has to say something. Since the existing of the printing press, no book has been printed more than the Bible. Only one book ever had a larger circulation than the Bible. You want to guess what that was? Any ideas? Sears and Roebuck catalog. However, even when it had for a brief period of time the widest circulation, the Bible was still the bestseller. That's kind of interesting because the young people in here are going, what was that? 
And the physical makeup of the Bible. Just think about how all these men would get together and put together this book. 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, 40 different writers. 40 writers who didn't even write most of them with their own hand, but used an amanuensis to write for them over a period of 1,600 years. All writers wrote in a related way of one central theme, human redemption. Now, granted, if I'm sitting on the other side of the fence and somebody says, there's one theme, one theme only, I could pick that if I wanted to. I could go to the Old Testament books and say, yeah, but this is this and this is that. But when you look at all this together, I want to paint the picture this way. There are no valid contradictions or inconsistencies. And probably the best way for me to make this argument is, if you put 40 people in the same room at the same time and told them to write the magnitude of information that we have in our Bible and even give them what to write about, how alike would that book be? How alike would that book be? Oh, even if we gave them an outline, no matter how far we went, I suggest to you there's no way that it would fit anywhere near together like our Bible fits together. But let's move on. The Bible continues to exist for all these years. It's consistent, fits together. But what about the prophecies? These prophecies that were written sometimes hundreds of years before, and this is one of my favorite from Isaiah 44, verses 26 to 28. Isaiah is writing and says, who carries out the words of his servants, and I obviously started here in the middle of a sentence, but to get on down to Cyrus and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem. So the prophecy concerning Jerusalem, it will be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. Of their ruins, they will be restored. Who says to the watery deep, some body of water, be dry and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Now we studied this recently on Wednesday night and I love this. Because some 150 years, or 160 years, even before Cyrus was born, he was named. There was reference to Jerusalem, which had been destroyed in the Babylonian captivity. The prophecy is that it would, once again, be lived within. It would be revived, and Cyrus would have a part. Isaiah prophesied some 160 years before Cyrus was ever born. And history tells us that Cyrus, the king of Persia, was used by God to take down the mighty Babylonians and the king, one of the kings that followed Nebuchadnezzar. And in the process, he would give the Jews permission, specifically Judah, permission to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to reestablish their lives as they had had them before. How did he do this? By turning the river Euphrates outside of his banks, its banks. By creating a lake in the process. By drying up the river banks. And as we studied a few Wednesday nights ago, those Babylonians 
were tucked away inside their walls and they thought there is no way in the world that Cyrus and his soldiers could come in because they were protected. God had another plan in mind. How would Isaiah have known that? That's a pretty good guess to call the name, to talk about how. And for the how to not at all be a normal battle. If somebody's asked to guess how that would happen, surely they would not have done it that way. But let's continue. We could spend a long time tonight looking at these, but look at the specifics about Jesus. Isaiah 7 verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall be with child, will give birth to a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel. The virgin birth was prophesied or predicted of Jesus. Now, you might say, well, okay, so after the fact, the story was told to paint the picture as though there was a virgin birth. We're going to talk in a moment about the Septuagint and how this was predicted or prophesied before. However, what I would say is, once again, if somebody's guessing, why would they use this one? Why would they use this one? And look at, and in fact, the fulfillment is there. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. But look at the second. Not only was it suggested or stated that Jesus would be the result of a virgin birth, we also have where He would be born. Micah 5 and verse 2. But you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Two pieces of information there. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would come from the tribe of Judah. Both of those are guesses, I would suggest to you, that no one would have guessed. First of all, if you think the Messiah is going to come, I think it makes more sense to believe that the Messiah would come from the priestly tribe, the tribe of Levi. I also believe, from what I know about Bethlehem, that nobody in their right mind would suggest that the mighty king of kings would come out of Bethlehem. It's not the type of place you would expect. But let's go on. We also see reference to a messenger. Isaiah 40 and verse 3, A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And of course we know the fulfillment of that messenger, John the Baptist. He may say, well, the great man's going to have somebody tell him when he gets there. Yeah, but when you keep putting thing after thing after thing together, it has to be more than just coincidence. This Messiah would be rejected by His people. Isaiah 53 and verse 3. Now, He would be rejected by the enemy, but why would He be rejected by His own people? Why would His own people reject Him? Even His own brothers. Isaiah, in writing of the suffering servant, the suffering Savior in Isaiah chapter 53, told something that even when He came, the people did not understand. They thought He was going to take down the mighty Roman Empire. They didn't believe Him. Isaiah prophesied. And what about the fact that His side was pierced while on the cross? Zechariah 12 and verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him 
as one mourns for an only son. And I think about the mother of Jesus at the foot of her son who was pierced, as we see in John chapter 19 and verse 34. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus. And in Zechariah 11 and verse 12, we have another specific. The amount of money that Jesus would be betrayed for. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. And as though Judas were speaking, Zechariah says, so they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And we see that fulfilled in Matthew 26, verses 14 to 15. But what would be done with the money? We know that story, how that Judas apparently was having trouble with his conscience and took the money back and threw it at their feet and they said, what are we going to do with it? It's blood money. It's not like we can put it in the treasury. But in Zechariah 11, verse 13, the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. And of course, we know that story as it is fulfilled, that prophecy it is as it was fulfilled in Matthew 27, 6 to 7. What do we do with the money? We need a place to bury the indigent, the potter. And so the money, as Zechariah had prophesied, was used. Now, we live in the year 2016. And I see how someone could say, yeah, how do we know that, it was that these things were written before, that the specifics were written before, the Septuagint is the answer. The Septuagint, historically, is the first known copy of the Old Testament that was translated from Hebrew to Greek. And if you look at history, if you look at the evidence, the evidence that's not in the Bible, you'll see that so much of what we've looked at tonight is indeed in the Septuagint. And it is known from historical writings that the Septuagint existed at least 250 years before Christ. And what I would suggest is, if the Septuagint proves that these things were written 250 years before Christ, what's the difference between 250 years and, in Isaiah's case, 750 years? If it was before, and the detail is there, there must have been a reason for it. What about the pre-scientific accuracy of the Bible? I enjoy these. That age-old question of how the earth was suspended. And in 500 or 600 B.C., Greek mythology tells us that the discussion was there was a Greek god by the name of Atlas that suspended the earth on his shoulders. And if you look at that story, it's an interesting story because... Atlas, as the story goes, was being punished for something he had done wrong and therefore compelled to hold the weight of the earth on his shoulder. And while it seems ridiculous to us because we know better, what other solution would you have if you thought this big planet that we live on, which is either round or flat or square or in some other form, has got to be held up by something. So if there are gods who are bigger than humans and if there is even one who could have created this, then it's possible that there could be one who would hold it up. And later, historically, and this is the best I could find, and I apologize, but later it was suggested, no, Atlas does not hold the earth up. The earth is held in place by four poles. 
And even when Magellan sailed, and even though he died before he completed his journey, one of his questions was, where are the poles? And he stated, as is repeated in this document, the treatise of navigation, the earth is round and remains suspended and immovable in the midst of all the celestial bodies. And notice again the dates. Magellan lived 1480 to 1521. And so at this point, finally the truth is coming to be known, except it was already known, at least by Job. In Job 26 and verse 7, when he referred to God by saying, He spreads out the northern skies over the empty space, and He suspends the earth over nothing. Now, several of us will remember Neil Armstrong, and Mark is in the balcony, and I, he was telling me about Neil, Neil Armstrong a while ago, and I said, when were you born? And he said, 1982. <laughs> I was impressed that he knew about him. Many of us will remember this picture of the first man who walked on the face, uh, or who walked on the moon. And he was asked, what is the most magnificent thing you have seen in your way to the moon? And he responded, the most magnificent thing I saw in my space journey is that the planet Earth is hanging on nothing. He confirmed what Job said. And of course, that story of Columbus, what's interesting about the story of Columbus is if you study closely, you'll see that Columbus really was not the first one to believe that the Earth was not flat. Pythagoras was one who, even in the 6th century, so 500 and some years before Christ, suggested that the earth was round. Uh, others, Aristotle in the 4th century, suggested the same because of their observations and calculations. And around 350 B.C., Aristotle declared that the earth indeed was a sphere. And during the next 100 years or so, Aristarchus and Eratosthenes Measure the size of the earth. So, somewhere 600 years and after before Christ, individuals were starting to believe that the earth was not flat. But Isaiah, some 750 years before, in Isaiah 40 and verse 22, stated he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And his people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, and spreads them out like a tent to live in. And then the wise man in Proverbs 8 in verse 27, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he set a circle upon the face of the deep, I was there. The circle of the earth. And then there was Matthew Fontaine Murray. Murray County is not named after Matthew Fontaine Murray, the great... Na the great uh, Navigator, however, he was kin to him as best as I can understand. And it is interesting, if you read about Matthew Fontaine Murray, you will find that much of his growing up days uh, took place in Franklin, Tennessee. Matthew Fontaine Murray, as the story goes, and I say it in that way because there is question as to whether or not the story is actually true or a myth. However, the end result is the same. The story is that on one occasion, Murray, the great navigator, the great ocean-going 
navigator was sick and he asked someone to bring the scriptures and have them read to him. And the scripture that was read to him was Psalm 8, verses 6 to 8. Especially in verse 8, the psalmist said, You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish in the sea, and all that swim in the paths of the sea. If you want to argue with this story, there's good reason to question whether or not the story is true about later in life, Matthew Fontaine Murray having read to him Psalm 8 verse 8 and then going and finding the paths of the sea. But there is no question that Matthew Fontaine Murray found the paths of the sea. And is the one very well known to have been the one who found those currents and stated and documented where those currents are, making it far easier for ocean-going vessels to go from place to place. Those paths of the sea, interestingly, which are still being used today. How did Matthew Fontaine Murray know to look for them? He simply believed in God's Word. What about the water cycle? Why do the clouds not run out of rain? Why do they not dry up and go away? Well, we know. God told us. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 7, All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, where they return again. And look at this. What would you have guessed that number to be? Mississippi River dumps over 6 million gallons of water in the Gulf of Mexico per second. <laughs> That's a lot of water. You'd think wherever it comes from would run out pretty quickly, wouldn't you? If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth, Ecclesiastes said. And from Amos chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, The Lord, the Lord Almighty, He touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds His lofty place in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is His name. That's just interesting to me. How long do you think it was before mankind understood evaporation? You know, I don't think it took very long for them to have some container of water and see that over a period of time it would go away. But where did it go? To think that it would go up into the heavens and re replenish the clouds so that they could once again dump water on the face of the earth and would cycle over and over and over again. The inspired writers knew it. The idea of the complete water cycle is not fully understood or accepted, according to historical writings, until the 16th and 17th centuries. However, God told us far before. And I'll end tonight with this story of an archaeologist who went to Africa in the year 1922. He went with a group of people, and he was a devout atheist. And when he went... He went for the purpose of disproving everything he could find, any evidence he could find to disprove the existence of God, the writings of the Bible. He was such a doubter. However, after going and finding evidence, 
As the story goes, his statement was, I have been a fool. If you look closely, the evidence is clear. It indeed suggests that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Well, this is just such a small part of it. The Bible is an amazing book. The stories of the Old Testament and how they put that big picture together from Adam to, to the book of Malachi and, and what happened to God's people and how they represent us in so many ways. And then how at the fullness of time God sent His own Son for those backward and for those forward. And how as Hebrews 11 tells us, God doesn't say, just trust me without giving us evidence. He doesn't say, do what I say without giving us reason. He does tell us to use faith. But He gives us enough to know there is a reason for that faith. May we go back to spending time with our Bibles in our laps. May we teach our children the importance and the significance of God's Word. And may we show them primarily by practicing the Word of the Lord endures forever. Tonight we offer the invitation. Our purpose for doing so is to encourage any who's not yet a child of God to, to put their Lord on baptism. And to encourage those who are struggling and need to ask for God's forgiveness and for the prayers of the church to come so that we can do that. Will you come while we stand and sing?